Good evening, friends, or good afternoon, or good morning, depending upon where you are in this beautiful world. Uh, I am delighted to be here for this next edition of The Crow's Nest, which is a weekly mythopoetic look on the times uh, with special guests, uh, varying disciplines and uh, wisdom holders. So I'm delighted to be here for this edition, particularly with my good friend, brother from another mother, Ramayan, welcome to the show. So good to be here with you, Ian. <laughs> Uh, before I get into a little bit of your bio, I would love to just uh, just, just name to the listener that um, you know I think we've both been blessed to have known each other now for, I mean, close to a decade or even more. Mm -hmm. uh, initially coming together, really I think through a shared uh, desire to 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 emerge into a, a possible future that works for all life. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'd love just to hear a little bit about that particular seed, you know, that initially brought us together, at least from your perspective. Yeah, you know, we came together when we had a group called Emergence. And this was a group of varying disciplines, varying people from different worldviews, but all who were tracking a similar thread, that there was a pulse that was moving through our collective. And that we wanted to track it together, that there was a new world that was emerging behind the world. And that in order for us to really see it, we needed to track it together. And we didn't exactly know where it was going. It was not one of those groups that just had a fixed destination. It was one of those that were uh, allowing for deep listening and deep reflection because we knew that there was an emergence, an evolution of consciousness or um, a new ancient way that we wanted to re-embody. And so, you know, Ian was a beautiful, prolific filmmaker at the time. And uh, my brother Zamir also connected with him, uh, who I think has been on one of your other podcasts. Mm -hmm. And we did some of that work. And I feel like a lot of fruit came out of that that led us in some very interesting directions, maybe even closer to what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. I think that uh, this might be time too to lay down a bit of uh, what you have been up to, and you know, since that time. Uh, and this is uh, how I'd offer it up to you, dear listener. Ramayan is an architect of the next civilization experiment. He's an international speaker, a multi-company impact entrepreneur, and a systems designer rooted in the spiritual lineages of Advaita Vedanta and Hume Clearmind Buddhism. Remind brings together the ancient enlightenment traditions forward into the modern world. He's also the founder of Veeam, a web 3.0 creator network built to usher us into the next renaissance. He works at the intersection of creative expression, new economic systems and spirituality. And so delighted to have you in this context, Remind. I know we've woven in many different ways, mm -hmm. you know, living close together, living apart, you going off in adventures, me, you know, both of us coming back, sharing what we've learned. And so, yeah, I see this as just another point of uh, coming together and sharing a little bit of what each of us has been carrying. And so one thing I do have a question for you, which it seems like an important one, something I still haven't been able to fully crack myself and I consider myself you know, fairly uh, uh, able to grok you know, most technical things, but I really wanna know from you, what is Web 3.0? It's still in discovery. That's something that I'm gonna offer is that there's definitions out there. Some people say Web 3.0, anything to do with crypto and blockchain. I don't fully agree. Um, a lot of people say that Web 3 is uh, the ethos of full decentralization when uh, the entire internet is decentralized, we're in Web 3. I also don't fully agree. Um, and that's the thing about terms. They're trying to create containers for something. And uh, I really ask the question, where are we really moving towards? What really puts us into in a new space completely that allows us to operate differently than we ever have before. And I think there's some growing consensus amongst 
maybe some of the transformational agents in crypto or blockchain who have been there early, since the early days, since before this was about profiteering or launching tokens or any of that. The original ethos of blockchain was that we were going to allow for a more um, free society. That was the original vision, where we had less intermediaries that were controlling our data, our monetary flow, and our interactions with each other so that we could have more self-sovereign communities. And in those self-sovereign communities, we could learn how to govern with each other in new ways. We could learn how to make decisions in new ways. So for me, the fulfillment of Web3 truly is when we have these decentralized communities that are able to thrive with each other without the need for a central middleman to be arbitrating their interactions. Um, that's truly the well, vision. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. So so I want to highlight this part too because I think part of I think understanding what is what is web 3.0 or what is decentralization, like what is it the the solution to, right? I think it's kind of like still a key understanding because if folks don't uh, have an understanding fully of what what the main challenges are within the current systems, they might, you know, have an understanding of biospheric destruction or social unrest and things like that. The way I might phrase it and I'd be curious to hear your take on it is I mean, essentially the the I think it was maybe Daniel Schmachtenberger also talks about the difference between like complex systems and I can't remember what the other word was, but essentially uh, in a in a complex system that is becomes too complex, you know, it, it becomes so unwieldy that it can no longer be properly managed, and um, that's also a measure of the sort of hierarchical based uh, decision making structures, i.e., you know, the nation state uh, or corporations where you know a lot of power can accrue to smaller and smaller individuals who can then, you know, influence pretty major decisions and of course cause a lot of mayhem. And so in a way that this new movement towards decentralization, towards a kind of capacity to make decisions, I would call it something like a collective coherence uh, outside of sort of hierarchical based structures. That's the kind of necessary phase shift that I feel, at least that's what's put forward by this whole movement, right? The sense of the need to to develop these systems that can support this emergent elegance, right, of, of, of doing things outside of the, quote, former system, which is now, you know, showing its deep shadow and limitations. So that's kind of how I would understand and phrase it. And I feel like maybe that's important to laying some of the groundwork, because I also understand there's a phrase called a DAO, right, a decentralized autonomous organization, I think. And I still don't fully, again, grok that as well. But I, see, I understand it within that context of, well, it's responding to the need to have this ability to make decisions, I think, or even a whole surge of creative human uh, invention and imagination towards certain ends, but without a kind of authority saying, okay, now you do this, you do that. Is That's that correct? correct? Yeah. I mean, a DAO is essentially a cooperative without a centralized registrar. So when you go to build a co-op, you have a board, you have still your same executive teams, you still have a pretty centralized locus of power. And, you know, they make most of the governance decisions. You can have a vote once a year, but it's pretty nominal. Most people only vote, you know, um, very few people vote. Let's just say that. And with a DAO, the principle is that everybody has governance and that there's no central authority and that people have to collectively figure out how remuneration happens, what happens, what governance decisions are made, what projects are funded and supported. And I think that we're going to find some middle ground because we need to push things right to the very edge in order to find the middle space. So there's a lot of Web3 crypto blockchain evangelists, which are very much like pseudo anarchists, I would say, that are like, 
no systemic architecture. You know, the only thing is full decentralization or nothing, um, uh, which is on some level anarchy because governance does require some level of centralization. It does require some level of coherence and leadership. And so where I think the Web3 movement is necessarily pushing society to the edge to be like, what is the experiment of full decentralization look like? What happens if we are all collectively governing this entity? It's madness. The onboarding is mm -hmm. madness. It's trying to figure out who to hire and who to pay and how to pay mm -hmm. and how to pay people when there's no one person telling you what your salary check is. And groups of people have to have consensus methodologies of figuring out who to pay. But this is an amazing social experiment. And it's working in many different instances right now. Um, Can you give me an example then? Like, what, What's an example that you see that is like, oh, this is working to an extent that feels significant? Well, you look at Yearn Finance. There were a, a decentralized finance protocol that the founder decided to give all of his tokens to the community. And fully- By token, you mean NFTs? No, by oh. actual like token tokens. Like okay. C20 tokens um, to the community and said, everybody had all these tokens are the communities and the tokens are what decides who gets into what role. The tokens are what decides what governance happens. And so you stake your tokens and when you stake them, which means you lock them into a contract, you get to make decisions around who gets to govern, what proposals get to move forward. Anybody in the community can make proposals. And when the, the people who have tokens vote and use their tokens to vote on proposals, and when they go through, if those proposals have specific monetary benefits attached, or uh, if they're here to fund a specific part of the project, they get funded by the community treasury. And now that team can go out and do that work, report back and bring their results back to the community. And the community can decide whether to continue that thread or that project. And so Yearn was a decentralized finance protocol is, and it's been a DAO and it's been functioning successfully as a DAO. Nobody has a salary necessarily, unless the DAO decides that certain people need to be on full time. And they have that all transparently done, communally deciding paychecks. Um, and there's, because of the emergence of DAOs, there has to be emergence of an entirely new stack of technologies that exist to serve this type of, you know, organization. Mm -hmm. And so there's an emergence happening. Yeah. Interesting. So I think it's also important maybe to touch on, at least, again, you may have a nuance here too, but I understand emergence to essentially be um, like the the unfolding of a kind of intelligence that is is sort of harder to recognize from a, a sort of linear based you know, hierarchical, you know, lens. Because if one looks at, let's say, nature, uh, you know, you could see there's obviously a, an intelligence there with, with how nature unfolds. Uh, if one was trying to program in a sort of linear fashion exactly how, you know, okay, you blade of grass grow this way, you know, tree over there, you know, kind of do that, like that would be an infinite amount of effort and, and insurmountable, I'd say, right, to, to kind of recreate that level of intelligence from that methodology. But there's a different way, I think, to unlock, like what we're talking about here, which is this idea, again, of a of a sort of decentralized anarchic in a sense. By anarchy, by the way, too, you've probably heard this. The, the best uh, understanding I've, I've, I've read of it is it's not that there's no rulers or no rules. It's that there's no rulers. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the kind of distinction. That's very much how a DAO functions. There's a lot of rules and the rules govern the smart contract. And so your trust is in the collective rules that are set by a community which dictate the transaction flow, but there's no ruler. So well said. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I mean, I also think of an example like Burning Man, of course, right, where uh, here's a community which uh, you know, I was recently at a, a regional event out here on Vancouver Island, and it, it sort of my, was my first burn event in uh, eight years or so. And it, before that, I'd been, you know, many times over the years. 
And I sort of re-encountered the 10 principles, which I, you might be familiar with as well. But yeah, like, uh, you know, ra uh, radical immediacy and decommodification and, you know, all these principles that I was really struck by again, like, wow, this is like a, a sort of programmatic code for emergence within a, an entirely different culture. I would call it like a new planetary culture. And uh, at the event itself, of course, there is an infrastructure that is part of it, you know, like there's Burning Man Org and they have handled the toilets and, you know, this kind of basic infrastructure stuff. But a lot of it is held by the members themselves who self-govern to a fashion. And how, again, for me, that, that would be another clear example of, I would say, a sort of hybrid, right, where there is, you know, organization, but there's also a lot of freedom mm -hmm. within that. And this is beautiful. You know, Richard Rudd, uh, if you haven't ever checked out Gene Keys, mm. incredible work, and I'd love to see him on here. Side note. Um, yeah. But he describes the movement from hierarchy to heterarchy to synarchy. And in a way, it's almost like this phase of decentralization where you have a hierarchy and a trust in a very small set of people to make decisions for the whole. A heterarchy where you have a blend of decentralized decision making, kind of like holacracy was, where, you know, there's no per se managers, but teams can form units. They can choose who manages that specific part of the unit and dissolve when it needs to. So there's still management. There's still leadership. There's a allowing for leadership because we know that we need leaders to lead and take us forward. Um, and it's important, especially in this time. And then you have synarchy, which is the ultimate state when you have almost like a very awakened civilization that are so empathic with each other that we just know and understand what to do and how to do without the need for even any hierarchy. And that's, I think, our idealized state. And I think a lot of the DAOs are trying to go for synarchy, but I think we do need heterarchy as a bridge. Um, and I think on a mythopoetic level, one of the ways I like to describe this is really understanding the yin and the yang, right? where the, the masculine is very much like a pyramid, even in the Shiva as described as a pyramid, and yet uh, Shakti is very much a web, and is, is very much described as a interconnected network. So in m most societies, women are the ones that are holding a lot of the fabric of relationships together, especially indigenous societies. They're able to track hundreds of relationships simultaneously. They're working in the social net in a completely different way and that's why they say women are good at multitasking. It's more than multitasking. It's that they have a deeper multidimensional awareness of the nature of how relationships move. It's much more fluid. It's, you know, they're able through their, their networks to be able to achieve way more without needing this idea of a hierarchy, which is quite a masculine principle that needs a lot of rigidity and structure. So most mm -hmm. of the structures we have today are programmed by the masculine, right? Which needs clear power, clear leadership, alpha dominance, one ruler, one CEO, one president, it always has to come back to the one human. And we don't know how to do it without one leader just telling us where to, to go or what to do. Even in a cooperative, you still have your president. You still have your like one person, usually a dude. Um, and when I see DAOs, I see, wow, this is the emergence of the feminine in structure, in shared leadership in learning how to hold a web and a tapestry and a network of relationships, learning how to be able to figure out things through consensus. Everything is through consensus protocols. And it's beautiful to witness this emergence of the feminine, not just as an abstract concept, not just as an empowerment rituals, but in the structure of the emergence that's happening. And watching that is really beautiful. And watching so many men emerge into this and have to negotiate and navigate through conversation and through consensus has been a beautiful thing to witness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. 
a couple of threads come to mind. One is uh, I was reminded of a scene in the, the film I co-directed called Amplify Her, which I believe you've seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it just also reminded me because right now there's a festival happening in uh, the interior of BC called Base Coast, which is actually where we filmed this interview. But the artist uh, name was Blontron. And uh, she has this really great line in it where she's actually kind of talking about this whole dynamic between the masculine and feminine. And she says, uh, you know, a guy goes and, you know, needs to move a rock. He's like, move the rock. Got it. And she says, but a woman goes to move the rock. She's like, well, I got to move the rock, but then I got to go pick up my kids. And then do I need to buy milk? And I'm thinking about how moving this rock will affect the rest of my life. <laughs> and, and she says it in such a funny way, but it, like audiences just crack up because there's some kind of, you know, recognition there of, like you said, this interrelational web that I feel uh, maybe men, at least maybe conditioned in a system, can be more myopic right, with it. And just like, okay, that's the thing. I need to do the task, task complete. But there is this uh, relational intelligence, which is what you talk about. I'm also reminded of, uh, I, I, I can't remember if it was a quote or just either at least what I gleaned from essentially looking at the Enlightenment you know, movement of the 60s into the 70s, like this burst, right, of kind of uh, oneness and, and cracking through this, uh, layer of of suppression right in the culture is sort of it's well known right this blast of you know acid and music and everything and this idea of personal enlightenment really came to the forefront and that the challenge that we face now in the wake of that generation is not so much the need for individuals to have more personal enlightenment or go to a cave you know disappear for 10 years but to actually crystallize structures that can hold and live out those realizations or those revelations that's a little bit of my understanding too, which is why, you know, when we talk about now this like systemic response or the structures of, or you say the feminine, that can be lived. Uh, that's, that's why it's so important, I think, to understand this, that uh, unless we're able to crystallize these structures in a, in a functional way, then your own personal enlightenment doesn't really matter that much. I mean, that's at least where, you know, I've understood. Well, you know, the more I've come on the spiritual path, the more I've come to see that there is no such thing as personal enlightenment. Meaning, um, you as a awareness, you operating as an individual, experience awakening through the degree to which you're present to life. And if you're a true spiritual student, your prayer is to awaken for the good of the whole, not for some personal gratification, not to free yourself from karma, not for whatever it is. The prayer is, how do I serve the good of the whole in the greatest way? And one's personal refinement, one's mastering one's dream one becoming aware and embodying the states of love and compassion only helps one in their journey to serve the good of the whole. So it's a dynamic reciprocity in that relationship. And this is the beautiful thing is that there's a mirroring effect of the in to the out and the out to the in, right? A part of the challenge we've seen is that there's so much of this awakening journey that's happening for people who are embodying these new states of being and realizing who they are and connecting to their inherent divinity and realizing the beauty of reality. And then they go into the world and there's no structures that support that realization. They have to go back into the nine to five. They have to go back into the corporate grid. And most of those people end up trying to become like Instagram influencers because like we're, you know, one of the only ways we can realize our personal freedom, but then it becomes extractive and spirituality ends up becoming extractive. And we've all seen that game. And so we know we want to be part of a new game. We want to be part of a new set of rules essentially, that allow us to play differently. That's really what it comes down to, is all these Web3 is saying, we're going to have a new set of rules. And these set of rules are going to allow us to play according better to the laws of nature, of sacred reciprocity, of Aini, of you know fairness, of more equality, of everybody wins. These are the rules that we've decided to play. This is the ethos we've decided to play in. And we're going to program a structure that allows us to do that mm. finally. 
and we're approaching that in a meaningful way. So that's what Web3 really means to me. Um, it means taking back control, owning your own information. Your data is sacred. You know, people don't think of their data as sacred, but it is. It contains all the information about you and you having control of the keys of your data and not allowing it to be, you know, siphoned and sold on your behalf is part of your reclaiming of your sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so this is a big part of the of the journey. Well, let me let me ask you too about this because this is what comes up for me when I think of uh, essentially the, this this recognition of trust. Like, because if I look at Burning Man, for example, right, a lot of people uh, recognize or have experiences of, you know, you're in this field, this social field, where there's a certain degree of openness, and part of that is the program programming of the principles, but also a, a sense of being in a sort of a temporary autonomous zone, right, from the sort of default world, which is how it's referenced. And so there's a general sense of openness and, and you know, somebody approaches you, it's like you a little bit more of, well, they're not trying to sell me anything or get something from me necessarily. It's just like an invitation, right? Oh, hey, do you want to go jump down this, you know, massive slide or go get a popsicle or, you know, there's a certain synchronistic um, possibility that emerges. And then I find the difference in the default world often is, is this lack of trust, right? That um, all of these institutions seem to be in place to essentially govern the lack of trust. Mm -hmm. Right. There's there's a there's a thing, uh, an understanding of money as well. Right. That money was never used for within a community in the you know previous times. It was only used essentially as a means of exchange, let's say, when you didn't have a relationship. So you didn't have trust there. And yeah. so now, of course, as sacred, uh, sacred economics you know, Charles Eisenstein's body of work talks to this, there's the sense that as the money realm is encroached basically on, on everything, that it's sort of eaten away our capacity to to move with trust or to, to negotiate trust with, with others. And so I see in this new structures that are emerging, right? There's this way of trying to like regenerate trust, uh, you know, in a scalable fashion uh, to unlock really the inherent generosity. I see actually that humans actually wish to give, you know, when there's, when there's trust. I've been, you know, moved many times when in a situation where there's a sense of, yeah, just, just inherent generosity that people want to help, that people want to, give what they have, uh, you know, when when there's trust, when they feel it'll be received, uh, rather than, you know, a, a picture of human nature enforced by a current economic system, which is based on domination, on uh, commodification. And then we look at that and say, oh, humans are awful. But it, it's, a, it's a particular system that encourages certain behaviors rather than others. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like the um, way we show up in community is so related to this whole piece like the word credit in latin means trust right so yeah. uh, when you have a credit card it's essentially a centralized institution choosing how much they trust you when that's how much your credit um limit is and so your credit rating is your trustworthiness how much can you pay your bills how much can you do an X? so we've given away our trust as a society to the centralized agency to rate our trustworthiness to allow us to have financial interactions with each other which is kind of crazy if you ask me. So uh, actually the, the chief technology officer of Veeam, he was working for a company before called Resource Network. And the whole thing was to build mutual credit models. So mutual credit was put forth by Michael Linton and some of these other real pioneers pre-blockchain. I was like, before Bitcoin, I was working on mutual credit models with Art Brock and Fernando Ibarra and some of these incredible thought leaders who are building things like Holochain right now. And the vision of mutual credit was, we don't need to mine Bitcoins. We don't need to like mine tokens. You need to create an, a trusted community and create a ledger, an open ledger between your community, and you can create your own credit 
between your community to allow for inter-community exchange. I didn't need you to buy a token or mint a token or mine it. It was just there like a credit limit was. Like credit limits are minted out of thin air. You think they, you know, when they give you $10,000, they're putting $10,000 in an account. No, they're not. They're just managing risk portfolios. That's all they're doing. And so I'm really excited to see how this movement of DAOs then meets the mutual credit. Because I believe the future companies are communities. That's one of the things we speak about a lot. And that communities, given the tools of self-sovereignty, empowerment, treasuries, and capacities to allow their communities to earn together, are going to flourish and when communities then are able to have internal mutual credit models through the trust that they build, we're going to start seeing the flourishing of a new type of economy. Um, and this is my vision of post-capitalism. It's not that we don't have trade. It's that um, the trade happens within the context of community and is less extractive. So. Beautiful. Um, you know, we're winding down this conversation, but I would love to touch on what do you see as some of the uh, maybe a essential reformation, even in like internal reformation that one must take in order to, you know, begin to navigate or like what's the programming they need to release? Like, for example, I might say um, in sacred economics, this came up that you have to really release this idea that humans will not work unless forced to. Like, for example, right, like as in because the current economic system is all about this idea that, you know, if humans weren't forced to work in some fashion, they would just lay on the couch and watch Netflix. You know, and, and Charles talks about this. He says, you know, sure, maybe for for three weeks, if they just had a uh, universal basic income, they might just lie there for a bit. But after a while, probably most people would say, you know what, what does my soul actually want to do? I, you know, what, what am I called to do? And so it's this need to internally release this idea, right, that humans are inherently greedy or or just won't want to contribute that's one example but i'm curious if there's more like what are ways in which one must sort of reorganize their their own you know relation to themselves or or with humans in order to participate in this way i think i answer that in two ways because of the point you brought up one i think as a society we need to incentivize jobs that people don't want to do like nobody wants to go take out the garbage nobody wants to go work in the sewage and like those are jobs that are like really tough and you know we, if we are a coherent society, the jobs that people want to do less should be incentivized and paid more. Um, you know, it, it's a good, kind of broadened beyond UBI. You know, UBI is a basic like baseline we can survive, and now there needs to be an incentive layer. So that's one. It, on the internal transformation level, I feel like control is a big one. And I know I experienced this in myself as we're transitioning our company and building the DAO. As leaders, building a structure where we can trust that we can let go and allow the emergence to occur. And that does mean letting go of control. And sometimes this is a phased process where we give ourselves, okay, this is a two-year window of how this organization or this vision is going to transform. Because I think one of the things that we mistake in DAOs is that uh, there does need to be leadership. There does need to be clear, coherent missions, conditions, and rules, and things that are set to a degree that a group of people can then use that as an operating system to move. But I feel like we have a lot of internal work to do at deprogramming our conditioned relationship with hierarchy um, because it's really deep. If we're going to step into hierarchy, we're going to have to learn how to operate in a more feminine way. And I really do feel like this is a really beautiful time for the feminine to step into a new level of leadership and to teach us how we can step into this as a society. Because I really feel if we're going to create regenerative structures, we do need to listen to the feminine wisdom that has known how to do this from antiquity, that has been the ones in matriarchal communities to create a mutually supportive community where every child is able to eat. And these are things that are inherent within the feminine, where masculines are deeply goal-oriented. What if the goal is the healthy community? 
What if that's the goal? What if it's not some output or outcome or profitability or exit strategy or margin goal or whatever it is that, you know, the top of the mountain goal? What if the goal is the shift? And this is the shift from the hero's journey to the heroine's journey. I think we're in a relearning of a macro myth right now. And us learning how to step into that is a big part of how we're going to emerge. You know, beautiful. I'm, I'm recalling uh, uh, Pat McCabe, an indigenous grandmother, wisdom holder. You know, I've had her on uh, The Mythic Masculine and Gathering of Stories. And we're actually going to have her on next week uh, in the School of Mythopoetics to offer a session on the nurturer, actually, because it's, uh, it's so beautiful. What she, she, she's often a channel for these things. But one thing she talks about is uh, men's nation, that they're, they, you know, the, the kind of noble possibility that lies within uh, is that they are architects of the dream, something like that. And, and it's just such a beautiful image, right? Yeah. Sort of moving away from this masculine based on or, or coming from a domination culture, which is like what you described, all of this, you know, goal, goals are not bad, but I mean, if they're oriented to the wrong thing, mm -hmm. and that's why I see, you know, my work with a community in Portugal called Tamara, uh, Sabine Lichtenfels, the, the incredible, you know, matriarch of the community, says that the, the feminine offers orientation and then the masculine, you know, can really thrive because it's like pointed towards the right things. Exactly. And so, yeah, and I see, I yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I see that in what you're sharing as well, that, you know, the, the possibility of unlocking actually the, the yeah, creative potential, the imagination, the um, ability to, to make things happen are beautiful gifts. And yet if they're not pointed towards the right thing, you know, we're in trouble. And I think that's what we've of course seen now. We need to drastically reorient where you know, our focus and our energy goes. And I appreciate you being uh, one of these great uh, imaginal, imaginal cells, you know, within this uh, great unfolding. So, brother, thanks so much for joining me here on the show. Good to be here with you, man. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, and if you want to follow Reminds uh, Dispatches, I've seen a few, I think, where you're just getting out of the shower and it becomes a, <laughs> a, a, a download, a transmission. Then, uh, yeah, please check them out on Instagram uh, at Remind there. And, of course, for those of you who uh, are yet to have joined the School of Mythopoetics, uh, this is the the community that I co-founded of folks that are really in this uh, this inquiry with this lens of mythopoetics. And if you want to see other episodes as well, the Crow's Nest, check us out uh, on YouTube or, or Spotify. You know, you can find it under the Crow's Nest. So again, what a what a transmission, what a dispatch. Thanks, Ryan. So good to be here, Ian. Thanks, everybody. Mm. Until next time. <laughs>